Well, good morning. It's so good to see you guys. Well, it's crazy to think that we're already over halfway through this series on Revelation. We've been just trucking along, doing about a chapter a week. This morning, we're in chapter 12. And with today being the first Sunday in July, I thought this title would be very fitting for this passage. And no, I didn't plan it this way. It just the Lord worked it out. It's, this is uh, Christmas in July. So this is where we are. In this chapter, we're going to find that our victory has been secured. Man, I, there's some of you just need to hear that this morning, that your victory has already been secured, okay? Um, that no satanic accusation will stand against those who have put their trust in Christ. We'll see that from this chapter. So if you are in Christ, there's no outside force that can say anything about you, do anything against you that can remove God's power of, of his security on you. So let's look to Christmas in July found in Revelation chapter 12. Verse 1, and a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast him to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short." And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly with the serpent or might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. 
and he stood on the sand of the sea. Let's pray together. Father, as we um, read this passage this morning, um, we are so thankful that you have nourished us, that you've protected us from the evil one, that no accusation stands against us, that you have justified us, that you have set us free in Christ. And Lord, we know that we have conquered him, the evil one, by the blood of the lamb this morning. So I pray that you would encourage us, help us to stand fast this morning, to stand strong, that we would not listen to the whispers of the evil one. That whatever he's whispering to us that we are not, may you remind us that we are. So give us eyes to see how you're at work in our lives. Give us ears to hear from you this morning. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Revelation 12, it's, it's obviously, it's a very unique chapter in the Bible. It's kind of strange. Sometimes you'll hear this preached at Christmas time. Um, you can see why. It's, um, but it's, it's basically, it's a summary of all of human history. And it contains mainly three main figures, characters. There's this woman, there's a child, and then there's this dragon. Many commentaries break this up into three sections. Um, which is what I'm doing today. It's basically the coming of Jesus. Then we'll see the defeat of Satan. And then you'll see this warfare against the church. In this chapter, we are allowed to see behind the scenes a bit at the ultimate defeat of Satan and his last attempt to devour the people of God. This has been his plan, his attempt from the very beginning. All throughout history, you know, even throughout the whole of the Old Testament, Satan tried to destroy the offspring promised through Eve in Genesis chapter 3. That was his aim. Um, You can clearly see this in several places. One would be at the beginning of the book of Exodus when Pharaoh instructs the the midwives to murder every child. Obviously his hand is at work. That's what he wants to see. If you destroy every male child that's being born, then you know that there's a good chance Genesis 3 will never be fulfilled. You clearly see at the beginning of the Gospels when King Herod instructs Um, All male children, two years and under, to be murdered. Again, um, trying to stop this baby boy from being born. This attack by Satan continues even during the ministry of Jesus and probably comes to the climax at the cross. Um, For those of you Narnia fans, I love the scene in Narnia when the witch, um, when the witch thinks like she has won, When, when, when you see the death of Aslan. And like she thinks she's won, and then like the look on her face when, when she sees that death did not actually defeat him. Um, that's kind of a picture of this chapter. That you think like Satan thought he won at the cross, but all the look on his face when the tomb was empty three days later. So th- this um, chapter 12, it's a, it's a strange kind of chapter, but it's, it, it, it's very intriguing. And so these first six verses has the birth of Christ. You'll see his death on the cross and his ascension into heaven. So let's walk through a Christmas in July by taking a closer look at verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant 
and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. All right, first notice here that this, this woman, she is, she is a sign. Uh, this sign is a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. We also find out that this woman was pregnant and was crying out in, in birth pains. Um, at first glance, the woman definitely sounds like who? It sounds like Mary, right, when we first read this. And I think that is John's intention. But I think, um, you know, Mary should come to our mind when we're reading this passage. But I suggest that Mary is a secondary understanding of this woman. Because of the whole context of this entire passage, it's best to see this woman as the people of God and Mary being one of, the, one of those people. Because he says here, he says, this woman is clothed with the sun, the moon, and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. Now, remember, I've said this probably every week. In order to understand Revelation, we need to understand the Old Testament. Well, this phrase, having the sun, clothed with the sun, the moon, and on her head, crown um, uh, of 12 stars, that language should sound familiar if you're familiar with the Old Testament. It should take you back um, to the story of Joseph. Joseph's last dream in the Old Testament in um, Genesis 37, there's this young Joseph, and he says to his father and his older jealous brothers, behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. Joseph's father, Jacob, um, also known as Israel, um, interprets the dream in verse 10 by saying, shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves um, to the ground before you? So here in Joseph's dream, you know, Jacob or Israel is the sun, Joseph's mother Rachel is the moon, and Joseph's 11 brothers are the 11 stars, and Joseph being the 12th. So the bigger picture here is that this woman represents Israel and or the people of God. So keep that in mind as we're walking through this. Um, you see this kind of language again in, in, in Isaiah. Isaiah portrays Israel as a woman um, in childbirth waiting to bring forth the Messiah. So this idea that Israel is this woman giving birth is common. Uh, so here we have this woman representing God's covenant people, gives birth to the one who was promised to crush the head of the serpent back in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is also where we read about the increasing pain in childbirth. So John is using both literal and met metaphoric language to describe this woman. So the woman is the first sign that we encounter, and then in verse 3, we encounter the second sign of this chapter. Verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore um, her child, he might devour it. So here the second sign that appeared in heaven was this great red dragon. This is a very weird description. You got this dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems. Um, it's very frightening picturing this, this thing. So this dragon is identified later in verse 9 as Satan or the devil. He was deceiver of the whole world. This dragon with seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems, or crowns um, on its head. Um, 
just think about those numbers, seven and ten have been symbols of completeness. So this seems like this is his attempt to show his complete reign and rule as the true king. So he's got crowns on, kind of battling, like saying, I am the true, complete king, not you, King Jesus. Um, as we'll see, he is wrong, as he's often. And then in verse 4, we see that his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast him to the earth. Um, this is a reference back to Daniel chapter 8, where Daniel describes um, Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was an evil, evil man. Um, um, where in, back in Daniel, we see that some of the hosts, some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. That's a reference to this prophecy about Antiochus. He was um, this man who was hated by the Jews. He, was, um, he desecrated the temple of God. He was a wicked man that brought intense persecution upon, um, upon the Jews. As Daniel prophesied that he would trample on them. Um, so here, this sweeping down a third of the stars is a playoff of Daniel, that there was another type of Antiochus figure who would trample the people of God. Persecution, intense persecution. And we read at the, at the end of verse 4 that the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that, that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now just picture that scene. That's, that's a wicked scene that... Here's this dragon just waiting to pounce on this baby. Um, and I think as you think about this picture, this is a reminder for us that God is in complete control. Here we see this great red dragon waiting to destroy a baby. And I can't think of a greater contrast between something strong and something weak. A great dragon and this wee little helpless baby. Babies have zero defense mechanisms. But when our God is for us, who can be against us? Here this baby, Jesus, is born, but this baby has the greatest defense you could ever have. He has an omnipotent, omniscient father. I mean, what more could you, could you ask for? Um, so as this scene is unfolding, you remember Christmas as, you know, Jesus is, is growing you remember how all this played out when Satan is there to destroy this baby boy? You remember when King Herod heard that there was this, this king, there's going to be another king in Israel. So he, he planned, his plan was to murder all of the, the male boys two years and, and younger to protect his own throne. So how did God protect baby Jesus from being murdered? When an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and told him and Mary to flee to Egypt. So, I mean, he was... As safe as can be because he's got this omniscient God who knew the plans of Herod and got Jesus out of town. And then over 30 years later at the cross, Satan thought he finally devoured him. But the resurrection fooled his plans yet again. Uh, verse 5 says that she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. So the reference to a male child is obviously talking about Jesus here. The phrase of him being the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. This is a reference back to Psalm chapter 2. 
Rather than Jesus being devoured by the dragon, the child you see here was caught up to God and to his throne. This seems like this is a reference to the um, resurrection, the ascension to heaven. Then we see this woman flee into the wilderness. Uh, This is why many argue that this um, woman is a general reference for the people of God rather than just Mary. Because after Christ's ascension, it was the church that kind of fled into the wilderness. And here we learn that Satan is relentless. If he cannot devour the child, then he will attempt to devour the child's family. He is relentless. He is pursuing. We see tremendous encouragement in verse 6, though, that once the people of God flee into the wilderness, which seems like a scary place for you to flee with a dragon chasing after you, we read where she has a place prepared for her where she will be nourished and taken care of for 1,260 days. Now, if you were here last week, 1,260 days should sound familiar, shouldn't it? I think the 1,260 days here is a reference to last week's passage of referring to this church age. So three and a half years, 42 months, we saw last, last week, 1,260 days, we see again this week. They're all communicating, this, communicating the same thing. This, once Christ ascended... And then God is providing nourishment for his church, for his people. So this is where we are right now in history. We're in this season. Just like the Jews in between the exodus and the promised land, you and I are currently in this wilderness. And the Lord is protecting us. Not necessarily protecting us from physical harm. Just ask the, you know, our brothers and sisters in Eritrea this morning. You know, they're in prison. So God's not making promises like that. But he's protecting us from spiritual harm. No one can harm your soul. So this reminds us that this wilderness is not our home. Just as the Jews were passing through that wilderness looking for their promised land, we are just pilgrims passing through this land. We are waiting till they arrive in the promised land. But is that how you're living out your life? Are you, are you living out that truth that this is not our home? Are you spending the Lord's money like you are just passing through? Or are you spending like this is your forever home? Are you investing into relationships knowing that this is not forever? As we are walking through this wilderness, facing Satan's opposition... We need to remember that Satan is still present. He's around. He's seeking to devour. But there's a promise here that he is not victorious. We see this in verse 7. Verse 7 begins the second section of this chapter, the the, defeat of Satan. Verse 7 writes, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night, before our God. So here we see that the dragon is clearly identified as 
the devil, Satan, the deceiver. Satan here, he's engaged in this cosmic battle with the archangel Michael. Um, it's like good angels versus bad angels. I mean, you just, like, you want, like, Hollywood to make this into some kind of sci-fi film, right? This is, like, this, this is the kind of stuff that catches our attention in Revelation. Some believe this battle is the original battle, like, like Satan's original rebellion. But it, from the context, it doesn't seem like this is it. It seems like from Revelation 12, this battle takes place after the first coming of Christ. So this is probably better to see this battle taking place somewhere around, like, after, during the death, resurrection of Jesus. That this is Satan being permanently removed from heaven. The resurrection changed everything. The resurrection, the, the cross resurrection, is the turning point of all human history. It represents the moment at which the power of the enemy in heaven was crushed and his kingdom came crashing down to earth. It changed everything. Now, prior to this battle here in Revelation 12, it seems like Satan had some level of access to heaven. Because here we even see that there's no longer a place for them. That prior to this, there was a, some place for them in heaven. Which kind of sounds strange, right? But maybe this is what Job's talking about. You remember in Job, how that, that book starts out with Satan was in heaven. He's having this conversation with God. There's this discussion and interaction between God and the devil about Job. So maybe this is what has been going on, but... The moment with the resurrection, um, that the, it was when his, once his fate was sealed, he was permanently removed. Because it seems like from verses 8 and 9, it seems like Satan can no longer have these moments with God. He can no longer stand before God and have these conversations. Because here we see Michael and his angels being thrown down, um, uh, or Michael throwing um, Satan's angels down to the earth. Um, but this wasn't like Michael and his angels getting the better end of this. It wasn't like the good angels were stronger than the bad angels. This was Christ doing the battle on the cross. Think of Michael being more like a bailiff. And he's just removing Satan from the courtroom, in a sense. The courtroom of heaven. Removing Satan from there, all his demons, sending them to the earth. Notice in verse 10 how Satan is described as this accuser who accuses. The reason Satan's accusations against the people of God are rejected is because of the blood of Christ. We see this in verse 11. Let's look down together. Verse 11 says, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. So who are they at the beginning of verse 11? And they have conquered it seems like it's those whom Satan was accusing back in verse 10. And how have these accusers conquered? You know, if they've conquered, how have they conquered? Don't miss this. Because the answer here, it will radically change your life. Uh, the answer to that question will give you so much peace when you worldly mess up again. When you blow it for the hundredth time, when you feel like God couldn't give a rip about you anymore, the answer to how these accusers conquered Satan, 
who give you so much assurance, so much peace that you are still loved and kept and protected and completed in Christ. So what's the million-dollar answer? How have they conquered Satan? What we see here, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's it. Praise the Lord for that answer. By the blood of the Lamb. By the blood of the Lamb. So listen, church, when you feel guilty, when you hear the accuser accusing you and you feel guilt, I want to urge you to respond to that guilt by trusting in Christ's death. That on the cross, he paid for it. He paid to remove any power Satan has to accuse you of anything. On the cross, he secured your justification before God. You were made right because of the blood of the Lamb. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, Romans 8 tells us. And what that means is that none of the charges that Satan brings against you will stand up in court. They didn't conquer by being a good person or by giving money to the church or other charities. They didn't conquer Satan by being a nice person, by standing up to injustices. They conquered because of the blood of the Lamb. This is so powerful. Because your salvation is solely, completely rooted in the works of Christ, which has already been accomplished, then your salvation is sure. Okay? Nothing will stand against you. The cross was the most important event in human history. This is why Satan has tried his best to stop it. Satan knew the promise of Genesis 3. Verse 11 is so powerful. Verse 11 is a call for us to stand firm in the face of Satan's accusation by trusting in the blood of Christ. It's a call for us to stand firm in the face of Satan's hostility by witnessing to Christ, even if that means death. So those people in Eritrea, they are witnessing today by their testimony, by their suffering. And this is what's so crazy. You would think that the suffering and the death of the saints would be a victory for Satan, right? It's like, oh, he won. He's winning right now that those people are imprisoned in Eritrea. That's what makes sense to us in this physical realm. But the irony here is that the suffering of the saints that we see here in this passage is a sign of the victory of the people of God, not Satan. The end of verse 11, um, this must drive Satan insane. For they love not their lives even unto death. I mean, how do you compete against that if you're Satan? I'm going to kill them. Well, if Christians live, then they live for Christ and tell more people about him. So there'll be more, more people uh, bearing the name of, of Jesus, sharing the good news. Well, let's kill them. Well, if you kill them, then they rejoice because that is far better. And their faithfulness and death speaks of God's sustaining power. 
and only increases the kingdom of God. So ultimately, this has got to be frustrating for Satan. But sadly, Satan's ultimate defeat does not um, mean that he goes down without a, without a fight. I mean, make no mistake about it. He is still on the prowl. He hates you. He hates that you're here this morning. Um, and then we read, we read troubling news about this in verse 12 and following. Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and those who keep commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So we see here that while the heavens may be rejoicing because of Satan's eviction, you know, he's being sent out, so heaven's rejoicing... Verse 12 informs us that a woe is coming to the earth, for the devil has now come in great wrath. So, you know, he gets evicted from one place, and so it's great for those neighbors, but that just means he has to move to another residence. So now these new neighbors are upset that now that he's moved in. Satan's anger is fueled because he's permanently lost access to heaven, and because he knows he only has a short time to wreak havoc on the earth. So how short is short? We see in verse 14 a familiar answer, yet phrased in a new way. This time it says the woman will be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Well, if a time is one, then times, plural, would be two. So one plus two equals three. Good. You're with me. And then you have this half a time. So here we see the short time is yet Again, a reference to three and a half years, this reference of the beginning of this church age that we're in. So even though Satan has been defeated, he is still roaming the earth, looking to devour, looking to wage war against the people of God. This is why it's so tough to live as a Christian. Um, I love how one author so perfectly states this. He says, Satan is great. He is deceptive he is frightening and when he says great he's referring to size great dragon massive not wonderful he is mad he knows his time is short he knows his cause is lost so he comes against you with the desperation and recklessness of one who has no hope of redemption no reason to show mercy no desire to make terms Imagine the brutality of one who knows that death and damnation are certain. He hates God. He hates goodness. And he hates us. Our only hope is to heed the words of this book and trust in Christ to deliver us. 
So we need to be on the lookout. We need to be ready. But some of us, we never think about the spiritual realm, do we? And there's, there's two sides of this. Um, when it comes to how the church thinks about the devil, um, I couldn't agree more with the musical artist Shylin and how he writes about this. He says, referring to Satan, um, Shylin writes that he is tempting people to make one of two major errors. One is saying that he's not responsible for anything. So it's to be, you know, there's no such thing as the devil. It says the other is saying that he's responsible for everything. So this is taking no ownership in your own sin. You know, this is the, the devil made me do it. I couldn't help it. So one part of the church, all they do is speak on him. The other part is just as bad because they sleep on him. What he's saying is, there's some Christians that all they do is think about the devil. They don't even have conversations with the devil. Way more than they have conversations with God. There's another group of Christians, they don't ever think about the devil. They go about their week, they don't even realize he's even on, on the prowl. They don't think about spiritual warfare, temptations from demons. So Christians can commit two errors, either being oblivious to the spiritual battle, or being so fixated on it, or even fearful of demonic powers. And I think this is what Paul is trying to warn us and prepare us for in Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Do you realize that the devil has a he has a playbook. He has schemes, strategies. For those of you who love sports, you know, you have schemes. You know, trick plays where you want to, you know, trick the defense. This is what Satan is doing. He has schemes. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle, or here in Appalachia, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Many of us don't think this way. We don't think that our enemies, this cosmic battle. We think it's our neighbor across the street or our boss, maybe a spouse, a child. That's not who we fight against. It's not flesh and blood. There is a spiritual realm so how do we fight? Paul tells us in the next verse, verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. You want to stand firm? Put on the whole armor of God. I encourage you this week to read Ephesians chapter 6 to see what the whole armor of God is. I don't have time to expound on that. But as you fight the enemy this week, remember that you're not fighting alone. Think back to this passage. Verse 14 informs us, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished. So what in the world are these two wings? What's, 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 all, what's going on here? Well, I think this is a reference back to um, Exodus. In Exodus 19, verse 4, we see here that it says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. So this is... Them coming out of the Exodus, 
And God is speaking to Moses, saying, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So just like God protected Israel through the physical wilderness, God is protecting and giving us nourishment through this spiritual wilderness. So we are in this new exodus. God is carrying us on eagles' wings, sustaining us in the wilderness as we journey toward the promised land. We're not there yet. While we're on this journey, Satan is making war on us. But the outcome will be the same as it's always been. As strong as Satan may be, and as he strong as he may look, the seed of the woman has crushed his head. And this morning we get to take an opportunity to be reminded of how the seed has crushed the head of the great dragon. It wasn't through a sword, but it was through his blood. It was through the cross. So we turn our attention now to the Lord's Supper. This is a time where we reflect on the most instrumental, the most powerful event in human history, where this perfect lamb died in our place. Should have been us on the cross, but Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself so that the wrath would not come upon us, that we would be pardoned, that we would be set free, that we would be justified. We would be innocent. So all the accusations Satan names against you, you just say, look to the cross. Look to the cross. The blood's covered every single one of those sins. So if you're in Christ this morning, you have been covered. And so we're going to celebrate that this morning. So as you come this morning, maybe if you're a guest, um, it seems like a lot of churches do the Lord's Supper and communion a little differently. Here, uh, it, it, you don't have to be a member of our church to take of the Lord's Supper, we just ask that you be a Christian. So if you're a follower of Christ, you've put your faith in him, then we'll, we invite you to come and take. But what you're taking is you're going to take a cup. It's actually two cups stacked together. The bottom will have like this little cracker and it represents the bread and his body that was broken for you. Then the top cup is a represent, it represents his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sin. So whenever you're ready to come, you come and take of um, the Lord's Supper.